Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, we've had some mixed results out of retailers, but one really positive one was out of Target earlier today. The shares uh, surged uh, more than 4% initially, but have retraced some of those gains and are up uh, a little bit more than 3% now. To give a better sense of what was driving the positive, better-than-expected returns uh, for Target and what this might mean for Walmart is Scott Mushkin. He's Managing Director and Senior Staples Retail Analyst for Wolf Research in New York City. Scott, first... uh, uh, with Target, I mean, was there anything negative here or was this just uh, you know, unrelentingly a positive scene? And how do they turn around uh, their outlook so much? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the quarter, it was just straight out positive. Um, you know, I, as we look across our sector, Staples Retailing, we also do some of the hardline names like Home Depot. Um, people are just outperforming right now. The economy's strong. We got uh, low, very low unemployment rate. Wage growth has been percolating. The stock market, everyone knows, has been on fire. Housing market's good. And so what we've been saying to people, if you're not doing well now, uh, when will you do well? Um, but I would, you know, throw a little cold water on that for Target. I mean, their, their numbers are still going to be down year over year. Uh, their EBIT, uh, their earnings uh, will be down. So, you know, while it's definitely much better than they thought they were going to do at the start of the year, you know, Target does uh, still face some significant headwinds in its business. And just to put in perspective, it's stock gains today. The shares are still down about 20 percent year to date. So this has been, you know, you say everybody has been doing uh, well, at least in the stock world. Target certainly hasn't. Other retailers have also, uh, retailers have also gotten beaten up. Uh, also, Coach, I should mention, as well as Dick's Sporting Goods this week have gotten just crushed after worse than expected uh, earnings. So it hasn't been uh, uniformly positive. 
positive uh, situation. I want to ask specifically about Target's online presence, because this has been a huge challenge in its fight with Amazon. And can you give us an update on kind of how much it's adapted to an online format and what the growth has been like there? Yeah, I mean, the growth has been really strong. I think they were up 32% uh, in the quarter. Um, and, you know, they're, you know, they're on a collision course, uh, Target and, and Amazon, a, a very significant one. One of the things Target's doing is Target restock, um, which is consumable items. If you order it by 2 p.m., uh, you get it the next day uh, for kind of reordable consumables. Uh, it's really right aimed at what Amazon's doing with Amazon Now and Amazon Next Day with their Prime membership and, of course, subscribe and save. And, and this is our caution uh, with the space. And, and I think you said, you know, not everyone's doing well, and that's correct. Uh, but sales for a lot of people have gotten a little bit better. But the problem with that is it's costing a lot to generate those sales. And that's going to be the same thing with Target. When they, when they expand into e-commerce, they got all these programs, same-day delivery, 1,400 stores doing delivery. The question is, will Target make more money three years from now than it does today? And given the battle ensuing with Amazon, battle ensuing with Walmart, it's really hard to see that. It's just going to cost more to do business. Yeah, this, is, this is a really fascinating point. In other words, people say, well, they need to adopt the online reality of today, and yet to do so costs a lot of money. So, you know, whether they can increase their sales enough to overcome and then some those costs is a big question mark. Can you just get a little bit more granular about what the costs are? I mean, wouldn't they rely on, you know, a FedEx or a UPS or a U.S. Postal Service? And I mean, what, what, where's the big cost going to come from? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you nailed it with what you said. And so, I mean, the cost is basically... Um, you're having to, when customers used to drive to your store, pick the stuff off the shelves themselves, now what you have to do is either set up a whole distribution network to deal with them online or pick the stuff off the shelves yourself and either have them pick it up or send it out to them. I mean, the margin hit can be anywhere from, you know, 500 basis points to you're not making any money. Wow. Uh, and this is really the challenge uh, facing all retail. Um, on top of it, everyone has too many stores. The stores are too big. I mean, you can go through the litany of, of challenges. Um, and demographics is another challenge where we just don't have as many people having kids. So, you know, Target's got a lot in front of it, a lot on its plate. But you've got to hand it to the team. They're working really hard to address these things. It's just from an equity investor's perspective, are you going to have more money in your pocket in three years or less? It looks like it's going to be less. And that's why we remain pretty negative on the stock. Uh, so just looking ahead, so Walmart's going to be reporting earnings tomorrow, and its shares are down just a touch, uh, less than two-tenths of a percent. And I, I, I just have to wonder whether Walmart's share dip, if you can even call it that, uh, is a direct response to Target's positive earnings because there seems to be a sort of fixed pool uh, that the two are fighting over. And when one does better, the other's going to do worse. Is that a, a, a proper interpretation? I mean, I think that's a huge concern, right? Like, We've, you know, we've seen Amazon uh, report their, their sales are better than expected. Target's uh, sales are better than expected. Uh, Walmart, I think, is doing you know, decently well. I'm not sure they, their sales have accelerated thus far this year. 
Um, you know, Walmart's really an interesting company where you know investors have gravitated towards it so much this year. Um, but if you look at the numbers, some fascinating numbers here. EBITDA at Walmart is actually looks like this year will be the same as it was in 2011, and net earnings the same as they were in 2008. Oh. Yet the stock is like thirty dollars higher. So I, what I've been saying to people is that company better rip the, you know, knock the cover off the ball tomorrow, uh, or you probably have some downside because it's really seen significant equity appreciation and anticipation of a, of a turnaround. And you know, we remain really cautious into the back half of the year on the entire space as Amazon continues to add fulfillment centers. We think it's just going to be a bloodbath as we get to year end. A bloodbath within Walmart uh, as well Target. as Target? Or? Yeah, Walmart, Target. And we've even gotten a little bit more nervous around Amazon. We took our rating from uh, outperform down to a peer perform. It's just everybody's gearing up. We call it the clash of the titans between Amazon and Walmart. But if you've been following anything in you know, some of these small regional grocers, they're adding online capabilities. I mean, this is just going to be a trench war and it's going to be long and it's going to be hard. And just to sort of extrapolate out when you talk about a bloodbath, are you talking about steep discounts that will end up eating into the bottom line, expenditures for distribution networks that are going to eat into the bottom line, as well as losing market share, which will also eat into the bottom line? Is that sort of the trifecta you're viewing? Again, you nailed it. Yeah. I mean, that's the trifecta. Like, that's our big concern as we get to the back half. And I'd actually add one more. Labor costs are rising rapidly. Um, and so this is an issue for the companies, too. So, you know, the theme is just costing more to do business. Returns are coming down. Uh, it's harder to generate those sales. Uh, it makes and, – and, you know, everyone knows what happened last year, last holiday period. Everyone's gearing up. These businesses can't afford to lose the traffic, to lose the share. Right. And if you listen to the Target conference call, they, were, they, they had hints of caution around their fourth quarter – because they know they got to keep the traffic, they know they got to keep the share. Yeah. And one of the best ways to do that is to get more promotional, get more aggressive, throw more labor at the stores. Um, so we're not looking for a very, you know, a very good fourth quarter at a, at a retail. Um, you know, the one saving grace, maybe the economy. The economy's definitely picked up. Yeah. So but, maybe that will will help. But will it be enough, Scott Mushkin, with some. Uh rather uh, sobering words about the entire retail industry. Scott Mushkin is Managing Director and Senior Staples Retail Analyst at Wolf Research in New York. Well, they might be expressing concerns about aluminum, but they are certainly not expressing concerns about Bitcoin. Bitcoin has surged 89% since mid-July, a shocking rally that has some scratching their heads and wondering how long this can last. Josh Detman joins us now. He's president of FinTech Investment Group. Uh, and uh, Josh, I want to get your sense of what exactly has been behind the uh, acceleration in the rally in Bitcoin that we've seen over the past few weeks. Well, uh, personally, I believe that uh, Bitcoin uh, is an excellent store of value, and people are starting to realize that with the uh, stock market at all-time highs, uh, no interest rate in any bearing securities, that uh, Bitcoin actually can serve as an impetus to go even higher, and maybe even to uh, 5000 by the end of this month. And currently it is at uh, about uh, 
4,288. So uh, it's you're expecting it to climb uh, another good chunk by the end of this month. Uh, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and this is something that a lot of people have said, which is as central banks uh, seek to devalue their currencies or at least uh, buy assets and embark on these stimulus efforts, that why not go into a cryptocurrency that's backed by uh, this sort of blockchain technology and this sense of uh, sort of communal creation of uh, what it means to have a currency. At the same time, nothing really has happened in the past few weeks to sort of uh, indicate that it's more of a good time to go into this than, than in the past, right? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the key is that it is a store of value, uh, that there is a limited supply. And one of the things that's great about Bitcoin uh, is that, you know, it is a, a kind of a ubiquitous coin, even though that it, you know, it does have a limited amount that can be there. People have heard of it. People know of it. And there's more and more adoption uh, in retail and uh, businesses that are willing to take Bitcoin. You pay, your, it, you pay your employees in Bitcoin, right? Yeah, we do. They have that option, yes. And the ones that have uh, received their pay in Bitcoin are uh, much more happy than the ones who have uh, taken the fiat currency lately. Do you, uh, do, you do you personally spend Bitcoin at retailers? Uh, we do. Um, you know, in uh, where I live in uh, Deland, Florida, there aren't a lot of uh, uh, places that accept Bitcoin. Uh, but when we're on the road, you know, if, if there's an ability to pay for it uh, in Bitcoin, we do. So I have to wonder, you know, a big question mark about Bitcoin is, yes, there might be a limited store of the cryptocurrency, but nothing's backing it. And it's not adopted by any nation. And uh, normally a currency is thought to be something that is backed by the good faith and the economic engine of a country. That's not the case here. Well, no, it isn't. And quite frankly, the, the cryptocurrency is kind of a misnomer. Uh, these, are, these are commodities. These are digital assets. There's no ownership. Uh, you don't have voting rights. There's a lot of things that you don't have with Bitcoin that you would say in a security like uh, you know, shares of Microsoft or what have you. However, because there is a limited amount of value and there is no central government that could come in and uh, mess around with changing rates, adding liquidity, taking away liquidity, uh, there is a certain stability uh, with that model that uh, lends itself for some trust and some belief. And uh, I think that's why people are migrating to it, because they see uh, what a disaster the central banks have become. And, you know, anything that's regulated by the government has a tendency to uh, just become more and more regulated. You know, I take issue with the idea that the central banks have become disasters, because some would say that they stepped in and they prevented another uh, financial crisis that was or at least a, another uh, great recession, great depression, as uh, as what we saw in the 30s. So, you know, I mean, some people could say that they did what they needed to do, and we haven't seen rampant inflation, and the economy has continued to grind higher. So, you know, there is this feeling, yes, central banks have certainly uh, stepped into the markets and propped them up in, in a big way. Uh, but I do have to uh, take issue with that. And I also have to question one other thing that you're, you're saying, which is the ubiquitousness of Bitcoin. I have yet to see a retailer that has a sign up that says we accept Bitcoin. Where is this cryptocurrency ubiquitous? And, and sort of where is it accepted uh, that sort of gives you the sense that it's uh, long lasting? Well, I mean, you can buy stuff on, on Overstock.com, Virgin Atlantic, Dell Computers, Starbucks has uh, 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 venues where you can pay in Bitcoin. Um, there will be more. Uh, and uh, and, and if, if the uh, segue that's happening is coming out, it's going to allow the transaction time to be greatly uh, increased, and then therefore it'll be a lot easier to pay in Bitcoin. 
Uh, and that's something that's coming up here in the next month or so. And if, if that happens, which we believe it will, uh, we believe there'll be even more increased acceptance of Bitcoin. In other words, if people can transact with Bitcoin, not only can they do it more quickly, but also uh, I assume the settlement and the back office costs will also be reduced, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So that's a big piece of it as well, right? Absolutely. So uh, are more of your employees asking to be paid in Bitcoin these days? Yes, they are. <laughs> what proportion of your employees are paid in Bitcoin? Uh, probably about 65 percent. Um, you know, and we uh, we allow them um, you know, to uh, access coins that, that we mine ourselves. Uh, and basically, uh, we think that, uh, you know, at least for the time being, uh, we think that more and more are going to be paid in Bitcoin. Josh Detman, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, such an interesting area. I'm looking at the chart right now. It is uh, kind of mind-blowing to see uh, the rally. It looks like a, a rocket taking off of Bitcoin's value. Josh Detman is president of FinTech Investment Group in Florida. Uh, and we will keep uh, talking about Bitcoin, but not only Bitcoin, but also uh, the blockchain technology behind it that is being adopted by more big investment firms. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. So yesterday we were talking about the retail sales and how the U.S. consumer appears to be in really good shape. And then we get this from our own Adam Temkin, uh, a story about how deep subprime auto loans are experiencing delinquencies uh, at the fastest pace since the crisis. That sounds bad. Adam Temkin joins us now to explain uh, what's behind this and how concerning this really is. Uh, Adam Temkin is a credit markets reporter here at Bloomberg News. So, Adam, let's just get a big picture sense of what the delinquency rate is and just the backdrop for deep subprime auto loans, which, to my recollection, are at the highest proportion of overall subprime auto loans that they've ever been. That's right. Even though subprime as a whole has decreased a little bit, deep subprime, which is a what, what Equifax calls a vantage score, which is similar to FICO of less than 530, has actually increased. And the delinquency rate for those least creditworthy borrowers is as high as it was for loans originated in 07 and 08. Um, and those Credit scores are about the same, you know, in that range bound 530 or less, but yet the performance of the loans is getting worse for those people. So what does this mean? Does this mean that the originators of these loans were irresponsible or a little bit lax with their lending standards? Does this mean that perhaps the American consumer isn't as in good shape as people had expected? Or is this a comment on the underlying uh, value of the car? I mean, what, what's your takeaway from this? Well, Equifax feels that this is really about shifting market share in the auto loan market. So basically, you had three kind of newish players post-crisis that got 
into subprime lending. Dealer finance companies, monolines, and independent finance companies. Monolines, to be clear, are bond insurers, right? No, no, no. This is a different type of monoline. These <laughs> okay, are because that's my recollection <laughs> from the crisis era. No, these are um, sort of non-bank lenders, but they don't have a parent company. They're just doing their own thing. So that distinguishes them from what they call captive or. Uh, finance companies. I see. I see. So the captive finance are like the Ford or GM when they have exactly. a financing arm. And these other, the monoline, as you say, are independent companies that finance themselves with what? Well, basically, securities? Or yes. Just- all these deep subprime lenders that have entered the market and through competition have loosened underwriting since the crisis, they tend to fund themselves through asset-backed securities. But mind you, it's still a very small proportion of the overall auto lending market. So what you have is you have, on one hand, banks, credit unions, and um, you know finance companies with parent companies doing very conservative underwriting since the crisis, and that's 90% or more of overall auto lending. And then you have Monoline's independent finance companies and dealer finance. They're doing a lot of subprime, and they're getting... They're going down the credit spectrum, and uh, they're doing a lot of this subprime and deep subprime lending. So, you know, here's a dilemma that I've been thinking about a lot, because we have been hearing about problems within the auto lending sector for a while, that perhaps things got out of control. Uh, The amount of auto-related debt uh, outstanding in the U.S. has reached an all-time high. You have people who are, like, pulling back and tightening standards like Wells Fargo. but I'm wondering how much this is idiosyncratic to the auto industry and the auto lending sector versus the overall consumer, because we are also seeing an uptick in delinquencies among credit cards, uh, credit card debt. Um, and you are seeing, although to a smaller extent, you're seeing a little bit of a weakening within uh, higher rated borrowers, more credit worthy borrowers as well uh, with their auto loans. So, you know, when you talk to analysts, are they concerned about a broader base weakening of the consumer. Well, I spoke to uh, Equifax's chief economist, Amy Cutts, and she didn't think so. She thinks that this is idiosyncratic uh, to the auto market and shifting, um, you know, basically the, the auto lending market the, has shifted towards these newer entrants that are willing to take on the risk. These, like who? Like the monolines, the dealer, you know. Can you give us some names of some of the companies? Yeah, like Westlake, Exeter, Scopos. And by the way, these are all asset-backed securities issuers. And, you know, those deals, those bonds are protected. But when you think about the actual borrower, you know, it's not a great situation. Uh, The way that this happens is when cars are repossessed, um, you know, the lenders try to get money back when people are not paying their their loans. Right. Uh, However, um, used car prices are going down. Right. So uh, interest rates are going up. So I, I have to wonder, you know, who's feeling this pain, right? Because somebody's not getting their money paid back if you're seeing more delinquencies and more losses. Are people who hold the bonds that are backed by these auto loans, are they starting to see losses? Are the actual companies, the monolines, as you say, or the independent independent financing units, uh, are they uh, feeling pressure or, or threatening uh, bankruptcy? Or is this just all kind of going out in the wash because the yields are so high anyway on these things. Well, as far as the asset-backed bonds, which again, a lot of this deep subprime stuff goes into these asset-backed bonds, those happen to be very well protected with you know credit enhancement and you know other over-collateralization, other protection. So bond investors have not really been feeling it despite the fact that delinquencies have been rising. But you know, you have your poorer 
borrowers, first of all, on the hook for loans uh, that that can't pay back. And often the car's already been, been repossessed. Well, and I will say, and this is an undertold story, but some of these borrowers, some of these uh, consumers are paying rates of what, like? 25% or more more on these loans, which is crazy, Uh, very, very high. And they're underwater because their car no longer is worthwhile. So probably they're going to be uh, probably suffering the most uh, in all of this. Adam Temkin, thank you so much for joining us. Really, uh, uh, really informative. Adam Temkin is a structured finance reporter for Bloomberg. We're talking about deep subprime auto loans. This is a small portion of the overall auto lending sector at about $40 billion, but still very important as sort of a gauge of the temperature in consumer credit worthiness. Uh, When we're looking on our computers or at work, a lot of people don't think about all of the back office support that goes into storing, uh, maintaining the data, enabling conferences uh, that are virtual with other people. Uh, But it is actually a massive business. And here to tell us uh, more about that is Stephen Smith, Chief Executive Officer and President of Equinix. Uh, We're also joined by Josh Yatskowitz. He's a media and cable analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Stephen, I want to just start with you. So Equinix was formed in 1998 which seems rather prescient, frankly, because it seems like uh, it has only become more necessary to uh, store data and get somebody to maintain it all for you because it is uh, very difficult. Can you give us a sense of how big this market is and how big you see it growing to? Well, it's a great question. Um, the company is 18 years old, as you point out, and and it is a $4 billion revenue business, been public for, for a couple of decades now. And the basic premise of the business is we design, build, and run big, massive data centers on behalf of thousands of big customers. Big 182 companies. of them, right? No, we have 182, yes, data centers, but we have you know, almost 10,000 customers. And these are big global 2,000, Fortune 500 businesses and small and medium businesses, all sizes. But generally speaking, companies either do their own technology or they, today, more increasingly, the last four or five years, are going directly to the cloud. Or third option for them is to come to data centers like Equinix, where if they don't want to be in the data center business themselves, portions of their IT can go to co-location where we give them private access to the cloud providers, the networks, et cetera. So the company was built on the premise of 98 when the internet was scaling. The big networks, the big telcos came to the market and said, we can't hand off traffic very elegantly in the U.S. It started in the U.S. And Equinix was chosen as the company to facilitate networks handing off traffic to scale the internet. That's how the company started. And then since then, we've just scaled it to help scale all of this traffic, mobile, cloud, data, all this stuff today that we talk about requires massive amounts of servers and storage arrays and networking gear. And we glue it all together inside these centers. Josh, can you give us a sense of what the competitive landscape is? Because I'm curious. I just want to bring you in to sort of give a picture of uh, how much this area has grown as far as companies that are trying to break in. Yeah, um, Equinix is the biggest by far in this space. Uh, There's other players on both uh, what's called the retail space, which specializes in the interconnections and the wholesale space, which is more of these large large data centers for large deployments. Uh, You have competitors on both sides. Uh, The retail space is a little more fragmented. Equinix dominates all over the world. Um, as as Steve can allude to, but 
you have a lot of small players coming in. There's just so much demand out there from cloud providers, from enterprises, from all over the space um, for interconnections and just wholesale space in general that there is room for everybody to grow and everybody does seem to be growing really well, both. You know, an interesting aspect that Josh knows this well is that um, even the big cloud providers that are dominating the technology conversations today, the Microsofts, the AWSs, the Googles, and then the, and then Facebook and Apple, who aren't really cloud providers, but big hyperscaling companies, they build these massive data centers in the middle of nowhere, big server farms, you know, in the middle of Tennessee, Oklahoma, Finland, where there's cheaper power, cheaper labor, low taxes. And then when they when they when they distribute their network all over the world, they use companies like Equinix. So they put their capital in their big server. They build these huge server farms, and then when they go to Frankfurt and to London and to Singapore and Shanghai and Dubai, they use the data center capacity with companies like Equinix. We're just the biggest in the world globally, and there's thousands of these data center companies around the world that facilitate not only cloud but enterprise data centers, etc. Can you, I I I'm feeling a little. Uh behind the times as you talk. I'm, I'm trying to imagine what that means when they use Equinix to connect to the rest of the world. Is it uh, fibers? Or is it uh, through satellites? Is it through, I mean, how, how does it's it both. get to you? It's both. So all of our data centers are connected with each other in each of the metropolitan areas. And so, and then we're connected on top of the networks between metros. So between Chicago and New York or anywhere but, in the world, the carriers connect the world. But in a metropolitan area, they do that inside of Equinix's data center. So we, we, are the, we are the central place, and this is what started the company in 98. It was six or seven of the biggest telcos came into New York, D.C., Chicago, Dallas, Silicon Valley, and L.A., two places on the East Coast, two places on the West Coast, and two places in the middle of the country to facilitate scaling the Internet. Can I ask, because we hear so much about telecommunication companies and the need to upgrade their networks to 5G, right. is there a sort of parallel problem that that, that you're facing as far, as far as sort of upgrading the overall technology underpinning this interconnectivity? It's part and parcel to it. 5G is one technology that will make things go faster and, and go to the next level. When we go to 4G to 5G, everything gets faster. So the latency is, is down to milliseconds and sometimes microseconds. So that, that's one technology that's gonna facilitate. There's also um, up to 50 new undersea cables being laid today between continents, just to get ready for the data explosion that cloud and mobile and all of this information that we all use to run our businesses, including yours. So, so when you see that starting to happen in the, in the Billions of dollars being invested to connect continents, connect cities, connect buildings, connect things. This is this whole Internet of Things concept. It all gets done in data centers. Cloud sits in data centers. Cloud is a is a technology paradigm shift to pay for it by the drink. Right. You used to you used to have to buy all your servers. And all, today you say, I just want to use this much compute, this much storage, and this much network, and I want to pay a monthly fee. Stephen Smith, thank you so much for joining us, Chief Executive Officer and President of Equinix, uh, which is based in San Francisco. And our thanks to Josh Yaskowitz, Telecom Cable and Media Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.